Welcome to JFI's Pop Parenting, where therapist Avram Natigel and me, Ellie Bass, use 80s and 90s teen flicks to talk about parenting, families, marriage, and love. Hi, it's Ellie. In this week's episode, in an ode to the incredible Robin Williams and the character of Sean he plays in the film Goodwill Hunting, Avram and I wax poetic about the myth of the united front of parenting, how wise elders come into being, a healthy breaking of boundaries, and how not to start off a session with a client. Here we go. Um, all right, let's get into Goodwill Hunting. So I will say that I finished watching it, like I watched most of it last night and this morning. Um, you know, Goodwill Hunting, I think was one of those, for me, one of those films similar to Dead Poets Society, which is weirdly enough, like both have Robin Williams in them, where it really hits on so many moments of pathos in that time, I think when you're a teenager and trying to figure out your world. Like there was something so that it just pings all of those feelings of like having potential. What if you never do anything with it? Um, you know, I think Goodwill Hunting and Dead Poets Society both really speak to those angsty feelings when you're a teenager of wondering whether, you know, you're as great as you feel you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was in high. Uh, I was at uh, McGill uh, doing my master's in '94, I think, uh, in graduate school, um, and I was always interested in psychoanalysis. All the archetypes of therapists that I saw were in Woody Allen films. Uh, Woody Allen always would use the Freudian uh, type, you know, the type of therapist you might see in Manhattan, for right. example. And and there's just something so luscious about the office and the books and the couch and and listening to people's deep-seated unconscious and everything about that really interested me and that that's the kind of therapist i thought i wanted to be even though my personality would be horrible for that type of uh, therapist and then i saw goodwill hunting i was uh um at the time i was working for a federation combined jewish appeal i wasn't a therapist but i saw goodwill hunting and it, sh- it, it showed me not only the therapist that I wanted to be more like, but it showed mm. me the kind of therapist I wanted to work with. Mm. And it had a real profound impact on me. To this day, by the way, to this day. Now, there's clearly, clearly things that Robin Williams does uh, as a therapist and the people who wrote this, that there are boundary violations all over. All the over the place, right. Um, however, however... I think that um, I often recommend young therapists, recent graduates, uh, watch the film, study the film in terms of um, ways to uh, uh, build a rapport with a client who is being forced to go to therapy, as Will mm-hmm. is. Right. Um, and uh, there's just, well, we'll talk about a, quite a few things here today, um, but that film had a profound impact on me um, as a clinician. I also wonder, because part of, Robin Williams' character, part of Sean in the movie as a therapist, part of his brilliance is that he does go outside the box. Part of his effectiveness in that situation is that he's willing to break those boundaries. And um, because when you really watch it, in many ways, those boundaries were what, what was keeping those therapists from having a real relationship with the person in their office 
who really what he needed was a real relationship. Um, and so I think it's interesting. Like, I wonder if, you know, do you think therapists feel bound sometimes by those boundaries, um, noting that they're limiting in terms of creating a real relationship with someone when that's really what they need? I mean, I think I think I, I see two things. I think I see therapists these days who have no sense of boundaries, things they post mm -hmm. on social media, um, uh, sharing uh, certain political viewpoints that just blows my mind that they would share this publicly. Right. Um, uh, and uh, and then also, um, yeah, I, I think that uh, therapists are very concerned about litigious issues and. Um, especially when you're working for agencies. When I worked at ChemH or CMHA or any of those agencies, you know, you're bound to a very strict way of working. And if you, if you break those boundaries, you know, you're, you're going to get a bad evaluation. I, I need to share one quick story um, that uh, very much ties into Goodwill Hunting. Many years after Goodwill Hunting, I was living in Vancouver and um, I, I was looking, I was single and I was looking for a therapist. I couldn't afford a therapist. So I was looking for sort of like, you know, their version of OHIP, whatever they have in BC. Um, and my family doctor at the time said, you know, I have a patient of mine who was a psychiatrist, but had a horrible horse accident and is paralyzed from the neck down and is starting to retake on patients. <laughs> and he said to me, so there's two things you should know. Number one, he's in a wheelchair. Okay. Number two, he's found God and he's Christian. Now, I know you're, I, you know, I, I, I was going to synagogue, I was Shabbat in Vancouver. So is that going to be a problem for you? I don't know. Okay, so hold on. So I'm, so I'm starting to do my calculation in my head now. It's free therapy, but my therapist is in a wheelchair and is a religious Christian and probably will talk about Jesus a lot. Can I work with this? <laughs> you know, so <laughs> you know, at first I thought, yeah, free is going to win out. So I said, sure, let, let's do this. And I went into the first session and he had, he barely had use of his hands. He could just grab his cup and he had to drink a lot because his throat would get dry within now be previous to this, all of my therapists were your typical prototypical psychodynamic therapist in a very right. nice office. The first meeting was in his house, in his bedroom. So right away, everything <laughs> I thought I knew about therapy was now broken. <laughs> I've got a guy sitting in a wheelchair in his sweatpants. Okay. Uh, a Jesus loving therapist who is in his bedroom and I'm sitting there and I'm having this out of body experience because this is not like any therapy I've ever seen. And within five minutes, he goes to pick up his glass of milk and he drops it and spills it all over himself. Now, Ellie, this is five minutes into our first session. Wow. And I'm looking at him. I, I don't know what to do. Do I clean him up? I, I don't. He looks at me and he goes to me. No, he was crying over spilled milk. <laughs> and that was it. And, the and then, relationship was forged. <laughs> and then we started working together. Um, and then a year and a half into my rela uh, relationship with him, it was going okay, but I was having these horrible dreams. And in the dreams, I was pushing him down a mountain in his wheelchair and he was falling out of the wheelchair. And I'd keep having these dreams. And they would, I would feel horrible in a sense of shame that, that I, I'm torturing the guy in my dreams. And I thought, I have to, and he was an analyst, right? I have to bring in the dream. But I thought he's going to be, he's going to kick me out of his office. He's going to say, you're, you're a horrible, horrible human being. And he's going to kick me. He's not, he's not going to be able to see me again. He won't be able to handle it. I told him the dream and he laughed and he said something to me like, how far did I roll? <laughs> and it was after that dream, once we got that out, I worked with him for three years. I met Elisa about two years into working with him. It was his suggestion that when things were really rocky with Elisa, that I stick it out. Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, I will forever be grateful to to his uh, for his wisdom and for creating a space for me to to do this. I guess the reason why I'm sharing the story with you is every single part of the scaffolding of that therapy was something I have I would have sworn would would be bad therapy. Right. It turned out to be one of the most profound therapeutic yeah. experiences I've ever had. Um, and so I think, it, suffice it to say, I don't think therapists should go in and purposely break the frame. I don't think right. therapists should go in and on And it probably wouldn't things, work if it was done on purpose because it wouldn't be genuine and it would feel contrite. Anytime a therapist does something it, to move a patient or a client somewhere with a technique, it is bound to fail. Um, this was organic. And with Robin Williams, this was organic too. Yeah. He was a college professor, clearly, you know, Look, he's not working at Harvard. He's working at a, at a, um, a city college. Uh, you could see by the, the class that he's teaching in, the kids don't really right. want to be there. Right? What is that line about horse tranquilizer or something? Right. Or, or, <laughs> or how he like gets their attention back where he says, yeah. okay, and then you sleep with your client. And then we're like, oh, you're all back. Welcome. Yeah. And so, you know, what's so interesting is you have these two wounded men. You have Will, who's a wounded man and you have Robin Williams who's a wounded man and if, and if any therapist is really honest with themselves you know uh, you know therapists you know are born they're not made and so we go into this career because we are trying to work on our own you know knots emotional knots right um hopefully you, you've resolved some of them when you're working with clients but it's quite clear with Robin Williams similar to our last film he also has unresolved grief with his wife who died um, and just can't seem to really get it together in certain parts of his life. And Will also it has un unresolved uh, issues, which we'll talk about today. Um, and so it's just, it's such a, there's so many layers, I agree with you, uh, where this film is so powerful. Uh, what I was hoping to focus on today, Ellie, um, I, I selected um, eight, nine points, continuing our theme of what is a wise elder. Um, and I think there's a lot of things we can glean from this film in terms of, um, ways of connecting with our kids, specifically when they're older. You know, it's very important to keep in mind ages and stages when we talk about parenting. Right. The way you parent a four-year-old is not the same way you connect with a 17-year-old and then not the same way you connect with a 32-year-old. Right. So hopefully. some of the points... Like that would be the ideal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point, hopefully. Uh, so the points that I have here um, are more akin to parents who have kids who I would say are in, you know, um, early to mid-adolescence and older. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, a, a great film. Where, where would you like to begin? Uh, well, let's jump in. I, I guess we're kind of in the, under the assumption that most people have seen this film. So maybe, um, just a 20 second recap, um, that the film was written by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, that the film, um, really encapsulates this, this idea, this premise that they had of these. Uh, young guys living in a really tough neighborhood and specifically the protagonist that Matt Damon plays has been through several foster homes, went through really abusive situations, but is one of these people where he just describes his intelligence like, you know, Mozart could look at a piano and just play. And for him, every single textbook, every academic book, every math problem, every chemistry problem, he says he just looks at it and he can just play. So he's working as a janitor in, um, uh, in this university, and he solves a, pro a mathematical formula that's been written on the board by this great MIT math professor, and is suddenly you know, discovered doing that and is drawn into the world of being recognized for the genius, the academic genius that he is, but he's also got a rap sheet like a mile long in terms of 
um, violent um, uh, assaults and offenses. Um, and so the, uh, the professor gets him off of his most recent assault charge and he's put under the supervision of the professor. And he's told that he has to see a therapist once a week and then show up once a week at the university to work on math and, um, and advanced math. And the movie is really the experience of the protagonist um, that Matt Damon plays and the relationship between him and this therapist, as you mentioned, who's also having his own experience, who's brilliant in his own right, but both of them are hampered by their emotional trauma from really realizing their you know, potential in the world. And so there's a lot of questions about, well, what does that mean to be successful in the world? What does it mean to, to have potential? Um, and what do you do with it? Is it supposed to look a certain way? Um, and how does emotional trauma maybe stop us from being able to actually create the life that we want or could possibly have? Um, and it's through their relationship that that story gets unfolded and, and so on and so forth. So um, I think that's like on one foot. Um, there's, you know, the kind of the side story of his relationship with Minnie Driver, which is a girl that he meets at Harvard who, you know, they have this very unique, beautiful relationship, but is again, also her, you know, he has in front of him a life of a beautiful relationship and an incredible job. The question is, is he going to deal with the things that are holding him back? Um, did I miss anything? Good job. <laughs> I think we should, we should also just point out that the late Elliot Smith uh, contributed a lot of the uh, uh, music. It's one of my favorite and... soundtracks of all time. It's pretty, yeah, it's one of my favorite soundtracks as well. I think it's a pity because uh, after this, when he was signed to DreamWorks, they started adding on horns and, and but, which is fine if you're into that. But, but if you yeah. go to, I think his album was Either Or. That yeah. was the album, I think. Yeah. Uh, if you like acoustic music, um, this is, I, I would rank his music right up there with Neil Young, uh, Joni Mitchell. I mean, and just- And really a, a real example also, Lost Potential. Like just a brilliant songwriter. And a bizarre way that he died. Oh my yeah. God! I mean, you can you can Wikipedia that, but uh, very sad uh, sort of a story with him. Um, but uh, yeah, no, that was a very good summation, Ellie. Very nice. Oh, good thanks. job. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think one of the things that I think is important to um, just to touch on here is something that I have um, seen and observed in my office over the years, and how my thinking has changed, and that's around anger with men. When I worked at Warren Chappelle. Uh, an EAP organization back in when I first moved to Toronto in 2007, we have a lot, we get a lot of referrals from uh, big companies uh, sending guys to us, men uh, in their forties and fifties. Uh, they, they would have to go for anger management uh, training or whatever to be allowed back into the, the company. Is that a real and, thing? Like people actually get sent for anger management training? I wasn't sure if that was just a thing on TV shows. Oh no, that, that, that's, that's a real thing. And it's a real wow. ineffective thing. Uh, but it, what it does is it's so much of um, <laughs> how much trouble do I want to get in here. So, 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 so much of uh, mandated therapy and mandated coaching is all about legalese. It's about, you know, right. the, 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 the company can say, I did my part. I did what I could. Don't, don't sue me. Uh, and we did, we did our thing. Um, and so they would send these guys to our uh, practice. Uh, and it, you know, it, it, it seemed to me that what happened was with these guys, anger was what I would consider to be a secondary emotion. What was really happening with these guys is they were either scared or sad about something, but they didn't know how to access their, their fear um, or their sadness. And all you have to do is ask them about their fathers and they would share a similar story about their dads. They're, they never saw their dads cry. 
They never saw their dads get vulnerable. They did see their dads either hit their moms or, you know, get into fender benders and you know, all that sort of a thing. And so um, Will is very reminiscent of a lot of the men that I work with and uh, where he'll get a, he'll take a punch in the face like nothing. Well, you saw that in the beginning of the film when it gets in that yeah. fight. Oh yeah, they right? just get out of the car and wail on Not a problem. And, and, and actually, he doesn't stop hitting grabbing the guy. a hamburger at the store. It's just yeah. nice. Yeah, it, it doesn't bother him at all. Um, and we find out later that, you know, uh, as a child, he was physically abused by his, um, by his foster family. Um, but when it comes to emotional pain, uh, he'll leave you before you leave him in a heartbeat. And that's sort of what in the love story where, uh, you know, she, you know, his therapist and, and Sklar, is her name Sklar? Is that her name? Skylar. In the film? Skylar, Skylar. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, the idea that you, know, you have to take a risk in life. Yes, you know, you can love someone and, and, and you can lose it, but at least you have to risk it, and blah, 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 blah. Right. Um, my hunch is he could take, he probably could take a knife to the gut a lot quicker than that. And then, you know, and when she says, well, do you love me? And, he, and you know, that heartbreaking scene where he says, no, I, you know, I, I don't love you. And it's quite clear he loves her, right? right. But he just can't take that risk. And so I think that um, that motif of not allowing himself to get attached to anyone um, as a defense mechanism, but being able to take a punch um, is sort of what, what you know, um, I think what Dr. Bowen used to call gridlock, how we get gridlocked because of our past into certain ways of being. And if we don't find a way to break that gridlock, we carry that into the next generation. And that that's, was one of Bowen's great contributions of how, how do things get passed from one generation to the next? And, and it's this idea of gridlock that you just, you, 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 you know, you're a young adult and then you're an adult and you can't seem to get past this. And if you have kids, you will pass that gridlock on, not on purpose. You right. might have your kids read self-help books and you might even get your, you send your kids to therapy. But it's, the, it's, it's watching through osmosis how uh, an adult gets stuck in a certain way. And you can see it in Will. And it's such a beautiful film about how the grueling path of, of working through a gridlock. Now it's a film and blah, 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 blah. But I think, I think it did a really good job uh, at Will confronting his past. Um, and breaking through uh, that gridlock. I think gridlock is such an interesting way to describe it because, you know, look, you can, we can even look back to Star Wars, you know, where it says like, he can't be a Jedi because he's afraid and fear begets anger and anger begets hate. And, you know, we kind of see that whole line play out and, and very much anger, when I see it with my kids, anger is always a secondary emotion. People experience it as a primary emotion but in my experience, it's always secondary. There's always something that happens first, which is either hurt or fear. And if you don't get to the hurt or fear first, then the anger will be, you know, your your automatic response. But but anger like never heals or helps. So it, it's always just so difficult when that's the preferred, like that's the one that you'll pay attention to. But God forbid you pay attention to the hurt or the fear. That that vulnerability is so scary for people when it's been harmed or like, you know, like we spoke about, like traumatized in some way. Um, so yeah, I mean, I the that's, that's interesting. You know, the anger could be helpful. It could be helpful if you understand it as a tell, you know, that you're right. able to get some distance from the anger and go, oh, huh, I want to rip someone's head off right now. What am I sad about? What am right. I scared about? 100%. If you can get to that place, then anger is actually quite helpful, but it's right. really, really hard. I actually uh, gave that I mean, to somebody the other day that I was working with where I said, flag, use it as a flag. Every time you get angry, ask yourself, what am I afraid of? What am I, how did I get, how do I feel hurt? 
And wow, what a powerful practice that was, you know, what a journey for that person because yeah, they realized, oh my gosh, I, I, I see myself as a person who gets angry easily, but actually there's something totally different going on. Um, and we're so not given the space to explore that. Right, right. Yeah, there's a, a colleague of mine in the, in the States, Victoria Harrison, who um, I think she's a PhD in nursing, and then she went back to school and became a, a family systems therapist. And what she does with her female clients, um, she has them track, she has this very elaborate Excel spreadsheet, and she has mm -hmm. them track everything from sleep, menstruation, diet, menstrual cycle, um, all these things. There's about 30, 40 things. And, and what she uh, helps these women do is she tries to find these flags, anger being mm. one of them, in terms of what, um, what are the tell signs that you're getting anxious. Her. Mm. She sees her job as helping people. Under, because a lot of people, when, when they think about anxiety, they think about um, anxiety as a Woody Allen-esque sort of uh, nervous tummy butterflies sort of a thing. That's only one variant of anxiety. And her point is, if you can't recognize your tells, you're going to be always gridlocked in an automatic reactivity. And so by, by tracking these things over time, she's a nurse. So, I mean, this is sort of how her head works. These women are able to start, start making correlations between, huh, when I eat, I'm going to make this up here, but yeah. when I eat too much dairy, um, I notice that it's a comfort food, which inflames my gut. Which, and then like, the, the whole tracking. cascading of hundred percent and then and then I get into a fight with my spouse or well, whatever right. the case may be but <laughs> but she, she you're trying to draw correlations between so it's a very very interesting um, it's complicated um, and uh, um, and I think that what therapy can offer people sometimes sometimes when therapy works in this case is uh, that Sean provided will with a quiet space to move beyond his defenses of using his intellect. That's one thing that, you know, Will, he would read all the psychology right. books and throw back the therapist faces, right. you know, the inconsistencies in their books um, and, and allow, um, allow uh, Sean to access his vulnerability, which he was so defended against. Mm. Um, at, at which that beautiful scene, that very, that, that just such a beautiful scene at the end where he says, you know, it wasn't your fault. It's like, right. you know, don't F with me, Sean, you know, that, that back and forth of it's not your fault. Right. Um, allowing Will to access um, the pain of uh, that experience and, um, and sit with it with a wise elder, not have to run and not get into a fist fight and cry. Um, and if you ever, you know, I have clients in my office, Ellie, it's so interesting. You can divide the world almost into two types of people, hmm. the criers and the not criers. There are people in my office who come in, they sit down and they go, I can't cry today. Don't make me cry. Avram, I know you're a therapist. Please don't make me cry. I cannot cry. <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll say it. They'll say it out loud. Right. And of course, if I ask them the question of, you know, what, what would happen, their big fears, I'll never stop. Right? right? And then there's the people that walk in with their Kleenex. They bring their own Kleenex to my <laughs> office. They sit down and they sit down, they sit on the couch and, like, <laughs> and it all comes out. <laughs> You know, it's so interesting. Um, you know, and I would say that, you know, of course, uh, uh, Sean in Goodwill Hunting would be um, someone who, you know, um, will access all sorts of different ways of, of uh, defending himself and crying would be too painful for him. And you can see it in him. He, he's all, he's crying. It was a violent scene. He, he pushes the therapist when he's crying. He's right. angry with the yeah. therapist. Will, right. That Will yeah. is, is, he, he, that is territory he is terrified to go into. Understandably, right. I mean, you know, when you're a kid who's been in an environment where <clears throat> any type of 
vulnerability was met with violence, then, you know, you have to build coping mechanisms. Um, right. So in a way, you, you kind of understand it, but then do you live the rest of your life through the walls of your coping mechanisms? Exactly, yeah. So, Ellie, I think I, what I'd like to do here is um, I, I would like to share a couple of things here, hear uh, some of your thoughts about uh, specific things that Sean did that I think might be accessible to um, people who are thinking about what is, what is this wise elder concept in a much more practical way? How do you manifest that in, in your life? Cool. Um, now, of course, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what my late supervisor and co-author would say about this. I'm not sure he would agree. Uh, so these are my, this is my thinking, um, not his, uh, and I, but uh, I'll share. Maybe we just sort of clarify for people, like when we say wise elder, we don't mean like Gandalf the Grey, you know, like we don't mean somebody that has to have like a long beard and a staff and say, you know, you shall not pass or somebody who has to be, you know, 80 years old, or it, you mean some, simply somebody that has navigated their own experience enough to be able to provide like calm guidance and wisdom in multiple situations. Is that a good description of what you mean by wise elder? Yeah, um, I, I think that it's it, what I could, you know, I think first of all, de facto, if you've lived a certain amount of years and you've had a certain amount of experience in love and in life and in business and with illness and with death. And, you know, so let's say you're, you're 50 years old, you're 60 years old, you've seen certain things you know, you have the potential to be a wise elder. I think David, my, my co-author, uh, my, my late therapist would say, you have the potential. You are not just a wise elder because you've had these experiences. Right. As we know, Ellie, there are many immature adults, right? So um, you, you, um, you have the potential. Uh, the key is some degree of humility, knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know, okay? Um, I think a wise elder also has to know um, where I begin and end and where you begin and end and that we are right. separate people, whether it's your kid or your spouse or a family member. Yeah. I think wise elders are able to cultivate one-on-one -on -one relationships with people, even if they disagree mm -hmm. on religion or politics or whatever the case may be. Yeah. And I think wise elders have the capacity to regulate their anxiety and calm themselves down, even when the group is getting anxious. Right. And so we all have the potential to become wise elders. And David's big fear was that we don't have enough wise elders in our culture. And so we look back towards youth culture for wisdom. And um, look, I don't know what you see, Ellie, in the world. You know, I, I, I know what I'm saying. And it's disconcerting. I mean, yes, technology is great and we're building great things. And there's lots of exciting advances from a technological perspective. Right. But, um, but uh, I think there's what to be concerned about. Um, in yeah, the cultural I think our, you know, our ability to program stuff has certainly outstripped our ability to make wise decisions, um, you know, and our ability to form productive relationships, like you say, where people can disagree and still um, have a deep, profound respect for each other. Um, so, yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with that. And I think that worship of youth culture that's been going on in North America um, and Western Europe, really, for the last 80 years or so has really produced a lot of like discarding the idea that um, age plus knowledge plus experience can equal uh, wisdom that you need for life rather than if you're just young and smart and spunky um, you're the person that people should go to for information so yeah yeah interesting 
Um, so here's a couple of things that, um, that uh, I, uh, I noticed in the film. So the first thing, we just talked about this, uh, is Sean does something different than other therapists. The other therapists, when they're working with Will, they have this, um, it's just an archetype of, of a top-down approach. Um, I'm the therapist, you're the patient, um, you're here to get healed, and I am, right. I am your healer, um, and you will abide by uh, you know, my rules and this. Now that works great if I come to a hypnotist and say, I want to be hypnotized. It does <laughs> yeah, not I mean, work I think well. Most people walk into a doctor's office like that. So they see a therapist as a doctor. So they sort of walk in and like, okay, fix me. Well, you'd think, right. But often, um, I got to tell you, a lot of referrals I get are people calling me and saying, fix my family member. Right. So a lot of, a lot of couples work I do <laughs> okay, fix is, them. you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, actually, Dave, well, you read the book. David talks about this in the book. He, David was, uh, when David, in my, in my most recent book, David talks about the first call. And one of the most important things about a first call uh, for a therapist is why is, who is the person calling? Who is the most anxious person in the family? Generally the caller. And who do they think has the problem? It's almost always someone else in the family. So the person <laughs> who first calls, they rarely say, I, I can't, I, I can count on one hand when I've gotten a couple's referral and the person calling says, you know, I see my part. I mean, they're calling and they'll say something like, oh, my husband's a drunk and he's a son right. of a gun. And, you, right. know, I, you know, I don't know what to do with them. You know? right. And so I'm having um, trouble in my marriage and I think that I need help. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't get that call very often. I, I don't get that call very often. <laughs> um, and so, um, uh, so what Sean does that's different is uh, Sean establishes a one-on-one -on -one relationship with Will right from uh, the get-go. And here's how he, this is how I understood how, how he did this. If you remember in the film, um, all the therapists, or no, the professors are sitting there and he goes, uh, Sean, the therapist turns to them and says, would you excuse us? And then one of them leaves. And then he looks at his friend, the mathematician, and he goes, and you too, Jerry. Right? And then Jerry looks at him and he's like, me? Okay, you want, like, you're asking you, me to leave? You're asking me to leave the room? <laughs> and I think it sends a message to Will um, that uh, this relationship we have is you and me, not them and their interests. Hmm. Whatever you and me are going to do, that is the sole focus of this relationship. You know, I think kids can pick up on this with parents. Um, you know, when a uh, 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 when, you know, let's say your spouse, you know, your partner says to you, um, you know, you better talk to Timmy about, you know, computer time. And you're like, I don't really, it's not really a big issue for me, but okay. If you want me to talk to him, the kid can pick up on when one parent's coming and delivering the message of another yeah. parent. Yeah, it's so right. Yeah. And so I think what, you know, what Sean is doing here is I don't know what those people have, what their agenda is, but I know what my agenda is. And if you want to get helped, and you want to, I'm here for you. If you don't, you're free to walk out the door. And I think setting the foundation for that was very different than what the other therapist did, which is that, you know, ooh, I was asked by the math professor to do this great work with um, Will. So I thought that was um, really important. The other thing, I'm just gonna go through a few of them and then we'll open this up, Ellie. Okay, sounds the, good. The other thing I think that Sean did very well is um, establishing boundaries. Now, I am not, for any therapists who are listening to this, I am not <laughs> suggesting you should do this because you will be sued, okay? You shouldn't grab but your patients by the neck. You should not, and that's the scene, Ellie. So, but one of the things that, uh, and this happens in my practice too, this happens in my practice too. 
I'll never forget, Ellie. I will never forget. I was a, uh, doing my stage in my master's program at Herzliya High School in Montreal. And I'm sitting there with my supervisor and we're working with a 14 year old girl. And as she leaves the session, she turns to me and she goes, you're cute. And she leaves, okay? And I, I didn't know what to do. And he looked at me, he looked at me and he said, you have to address that with her the next time she comes in. Uh, and I said, well, can't we just like, whatever. It's like, I don't want it. He goes, no, if you don't address that with her, two things are gonna happen. First of all, she violated a boundary, mm. right? By trying to make you her friend. He didn't think it was a sexual thing. Yeah. He thought what she was, it was her anxiety. She didn't know how to process it. And she probably does that with other relationships. Yeah. So you have to course correct that with her. And he said, the other thing that's gonna happen is she's gonna tell her friends, if you, let's say, want, just wanna be like a peer to peer, kind of like getting down with her, she'll tell her, friend, oh, he's so cool. You know, you could just do whatever with him. And, and he goes, you're not, you're, you're not, first of all, you're not gonna be the assistance to any of these young women in Hertzley High School. Um, and also uh, th that at some point, one of these vulnerable women, young girls are going to do something that's gonna break a, a, a real boundary. Now you're gonna be in a lot of trouble. It was right. one of the most important lessons I learned about setting boundaries with clients early on. So no Facebook, I, I'm not Facebook friends with any of my clients. Right. They can't, I, I, I don't do any LinkedIn stuff with my clients. I've been invited to weddings, funerals. There's on one occasion, I went to someone who was an orphan. I went to their wedding, um, a client of mine who, you know, I worked with when they were in high school, they got married, I went to their wedding. Um, uh, funeral, I can't recall. I would go if it was, a, you know, someone I worked with very closely, but generally those boundaries are so important. And I think when Sean, yes, grabs Will by the neck when he says, um, I think the line was, um, what did Will say about his wife? He, he said, said something about his- You picked the wrong woman. He said, that's it, isn't it? You, you chose, you married the wrong woman. Okay, and okay. And then- he's looking at the painting and he's like, he's trying to dissect it, but you know, Will in his inexperience, even though he's smart, doesn't actually understand the nuances of what's going on. So he says, oh, Although yeah, that's I, it, right? You married the wrong woman. But you know what I think? I think Will was trying to rattle him. For sure. I think Will, I think Will was trying to rattle Sean because he, Will knew this guy was different than the other ones. You know, and well, um, but he also thought he could play the same game. He psychoanalyzed all the other ones too, right? So yeah. why not this one? Yeah. Um, so yeah. he was just, you know, that whole time he's looking at his books, he's looking in his office, he's trying to find what's the place where I can stick it to this guy. It's a good and, point. Yeah. Yeah. So and, and again, so you know, you, you one has to find their metaphoric way of grabbing someone by the neck. Right. Um, but I think that you know, uh, parents who come to my office that are going through a really tough time with their kids, whether you know it's something like my child has a grow up downstairs, I've dealt with that in Vancouver, um, or just really inappropriate stuff. This did not happen on a Wednesday at four o'clock. This has been going on a long time. And so how do you set boundaries um, when something has become chronic and a real problem in the house? Well, you know, it, 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 I mean, we're not gonna get into all the, you know, the minutia of all, all that, but, um, the idea of, of tough love um, is something that um, uh, is very important to bring in boundaries uh, that I am not your peer. We are not equals in this. We're both humans, but we are not equals, okay? And there are certain roles and there are regulations in this. And what's so interesting is if you ask parents often, um, what is the, if I, yeah, it's funny. What I'll ask parents is, don't tell me, but if your kid was here in my office and I said, what are the consequences of staying up past your curfew? Right? Oh, you're, you're and, asking 
right. Oh, you're no, asking saying, me, I, or you're just saying no, no. I'm just saying I'll, I'll throw saying. that out there to a parent. Yeah. And what's funny is almost always, if I have both partners in my office, one will turn to the other and go, "You see, it's your fault because you're the one who." And you can tell in that that you could tell the what we call you know how the marital um, whatever I'm just going to use an agnostic term the marital problem plays itself out in the parenting because right. these two can't get their crap right. together they around know you know what, what are the roles exactly so, so why would the kid you know right and so, so so often and by the way this is really hard because it because what happens is often in in our in our marriages or our parenting um is that we do disagree with our partners because we are different <laughs> we have different backgrounds right and so how do you come to what what i've all what i coach my you know my families my parents on you know, this idea of creating a house where um, it's guided by principles where you can move to, I can live with this versus I need to love this. So can you get to a place right. with your partner where you can set a curfew of whatever, or let's take a show or shove his house. Can you get to a place where you don't love it? It's, it's not, it's not the shtetl of the Belzer Rebbe, you know, in your house, but can you get to a place where you have a Shabbos environment where you can live with? Meaning right. that your principles aren't being violated. Most people don't know how to do this. Everyone is shooting for, I need to love the decision around a rule for my kid or nothing, or I'm just going to avoid my partner and just, you know, clandestine in a way, you know, do what I, I want. I also wonder, like, from my own experience, I wonder how much of that is the line that you always hear when you become a parent, which is the uncrossable line is the united front. <laughs> always right. have to present a united front. And I found that's a binding experience because you don't always think or parent the same way and then what do you do are you allowed to cross that uncrossable boundary and not have a united front and are you like and because that's the the line is that's the worst possible thing you can do for your kids is to not have a united front and then yeah yeah this is you know ellie it's you reminded me this is um uh well you know we we've we've spoken many times you and i have shared uh, the stage and we put on workshops and you've you've heard my stick about communication and compromise and and that's also one of these um, common phrases that people throw on. Uh, United Front would be the third. Um, I don't know where it started. My hunch is, um, my hunch is that uh, so much of therapy is feeling centric. So a lot of the rules come out of what feels good. And that feels good. I mean, when you think about it, that feels good. A United Front feels good, right? We're all on the same page. We all agree, right? United Front. My hunch is that's where it's coming from. Right. right that if it's you're, also if like you're an, feeling... an administrative kind of way of organizing things like the leaders of the family are all on the same page so we all say the same thing you know otherwise it's confusing or something yeah now my clinical supervisors uh will often um say some version of parents who shoot for united front are usually the most anxious of parents because essentially what they're saying is i'm getting too anxious about what you think let's say like one spouse to another i'm getting too anxious Okay. And by extension, you're probably getting too anxious about what I think. So let's not share what we really think about anything. And let's just come up with something that doesn't make you anxious and doesn't make me anxious. And then we'll agree to that. And so what they come up with is crap. And then, but they agree with, they can agree with it. And of course the kids can pick up on the, this false United front idea. So right. here's a much more healthier uh, uh, way to be. Now I am not saying it's easy, but I think, Yoda had ideas that were never easy. He always pushed for, you know, more complicated, uh, hard ways of living. Um, you know, the general idea is that we are trying to model for our kids real life, what they are going to see out in the real world, in marriage, at work, in synagogue, right? Politics. 
Right. And if you try to sell them this utopia of United Front, they're going to get out into the world and go, hold, hold on, the CFO and the CEO don't agree on anything. And, you know, Russia and the states, like, I don't understand. Right. And sold then how this do building. I navigate that in a productive Ex environment? Like, I don't exactly. know to listen to, I don't know how to understand this. What are we supposed to do in that case? Like, what Ellie, are the these are the these are the 20 year olds in my office who get sent to me for premarital counseling. And I'll ask them, um, uh, what do you think of your parents' marriage? And they'll say, oh, it's beautiful. And I'll say, why? And they never fight. <laughs> right. And I think, and I say to them, well, what will you do when you have to, when you have a disagreement with your spouse? What are you talking about? I'm never going to fight. Well, well, they'll, they'll say something like, well, that, well, we, we won't because I've done my work. I've read my marriage books and all that, you know, all this kind of <laughs> stuff. Right. So, um, the, the issue here is, and this is my thinking, I'm, I'm, I have no doubt people have different ways of thinking about this. The issue here about, um, what David called in the book, you, you read the book, uh, the middle path, he called it the middle path right. is this idea that kids should see that their parents are different, that your mother and your father come from different families with different experiences with different biochemistry we are not the same we are your parents because we have a ketubah and we had sex that's it <laughs> everything after that we're different okay some people preferably in that order but yeah <laughs> sorry yeah sorry yeah yeah, well, yeah um and and so um you know i think that while it's important to keep the machinery moving i mean you can't sit there and have you get get gridlock on every minutia. However, I think it's very valuable for, for kids to understand that, look, your mother and I don't see eye to eye on this thing. However, this is what the rule is going to be. So you still can set a rule in place and you could be honest with your child that no, that's not the way I would do it. if I was, you know, uh, on my own, or it's not exactly the way I would do it, right. but I can see your mother's side of things, or I can see your father's side of things. And through osmosis, they are watching the hard work of allowing principles that are often not always aligned, coming up with real world solutions to keep the efficiency of the system moving. So lunches are wow. made, so dinner is made. And, and so when, and, and that parents have the tools and the self-regulation when their kids come up to them and say, um, like, like take myself, okay, so my wife is more observant than me. We don't hide that. If my kids come up to me and say, Dad, do you really believe that? That opens up a whole discussion with them in terms of my own thinking and feeling about whether it's God or right. prayer or halacha, okay? I think it would do a disservice for them to say, you know, um, uh, what you see is not what you see. Mom and I are aligned on everything. You right. see, because kids see it anyways. Sure. It, it, it's, it's so fascinating how often family, families will be in the office, there's an ill parent or something is happening in the family. And they say, well, the kids, I don't think the kids know. They know. And if they don't know, yeah. they're intuiting something even worse. Yeah. Because we can pick up on that in a system. So um, I do think, and, and Dr. Bowen uh, talked about this often, open systems are healthier than closed systems. And in mm -hmm. open systems, difference of opinion is not hidden. Now, the question, of course, is, is there situations where difference of opinion is so great, right, that, um, that uh, what, that something uh, is not workable? And of course, of course there is, you know? I mean, I'm thinking of a situation, a few couples I've worked with where one has a lover and they don't want to leave their lover and they actually think they're in love with their lover, okay? Right. Like, at that there point, are things are untenable, right? There, there just, are things that are untenable. Right. Or what if one parent says, 
I am fine with a grow up in the basement. And one parent is, um, uh, no, I, I don't want any drugs in this house. This is complicated. Right. And, and so the idea at that point would be looking at the family of origin issues, but what is driving each parent's decision and thinking? And I got to tell you something, Ellie, when you provide people with the opportunity to share what's on their mind, where they're coming from and where they're stuck, it's just my experience that people don't marry at such radical differences of philosophy. Right. Generally, it's been a lot of water under the bridge. But once people actually speak, and I'll tell this to people all the time in my office, I'll say, you know, philosophically, you two people aren't actually on complete different pages. For example, one partner wants a third kid, the other partner is really scared to have one and they're dragging their feet. That is not a philosophical difference about kids. It's right. one person is scared. One person isn't, and they have their reasons. And how can we calm things down to talk this through? Right. You talk right. this through, and you keep talking till you get to a place I can live with. I'm scared, but I can live with whatever the decision is. Yeah, so, I often find that. Does this make sense? Or? Yeah, 100%. I, I think a couple of things. One is, um, first of all, it was an epiphany for me to hear partly what you were saying, because the fear, I think, for people without the idea of the United Front is, how do you make a plan when you disagree? And I think it's this idea that, oh, if we don't agree, there's no going forward. We can't make a plan. We can't make a rule. Whereas like when you really think that through, of course you can, like people do it all the time. Like, you know, in work environments and legal environments and all kinds of environments, you disagree and you work it out. But the problem I think we run into is, um, and this is often what I find, which is if you're in the emotional muck and mire, then it never feels like there's a way to make a plan. But once you get through the emotional muck and mire, then it's just technical. Okay, so now what do we do? Like, let's make a plan. But it's getting to realize, oh, this, is, this isn't a planning issue or a rule issue. This is an emotional issue. And we just need to get through that to be able to technically figure it out. So I think it's a real epiphany because the thought behind the united front is if we don't have a united front, we're never going to be able to like make a rule or hold to structure or anything like that. And that's so limiting in terms of setting up a family and, and being able to parent. Yeah. And I think the also it's the fear of what will the kids think? I mean, right. if we disagree, if we so disagree so openly confused, in front of the kids, they won't know what to right. do. And no, you set out what to do, but you can show that you have different opinions about it. And I think right. that's freeing beyond measure because there's so there really isn't room in the United Front to have difference of opinion, but still make a plan. Yeah, no, it's the it's the old idea of um, of uh, something that we we talk about quite a bit in the family systems world of certain families who have a guiding pr principle of uh, going along to get along, or or sometimes what I see with my from clients, they'll they'll use shalom habayis as a way of of stifling uh, any uh, disagreement, and and they use it as a way to basically you know keep everybody uh, in line. It, it creates a lot of internal frustration though when when, when that happens, whether right. it's the yoke of psychology or the yoke of God. Um, and so, you know, the thing, of course, is, you know, what's also uh, not a bad idea to do here is to, and this happens in the film, actually, which is a good tie-in, you know, when parents are in my office and say, well, if, um, if I, you know, if my kids see me disagree with my spouse on X, Y, and Z, and we really can't make a decision, I'll say, so, and, and what? And I'll say, well, well this is going to, and then what? And, and you play that whole idea, and then what? And what you discover mm -hmm is that it's such uncharted territory, they don't know what the end then what is, they just know it's really, really bad. Uh-huh, and or, it's, all, it's all being filled with worst case scenario, right? Right. Like, and then, right. 
you know, our house will burn down and we'll, you know, we'll get divorced and then we'll never, you know, like it just kind of goes down that road of catastrophizing everything. Well, generally also the road that goes down is, and then it'll be, will be like my parents were. I mean, it, it, almost always the road wow. leads to, and then, and then my kids will experience what I experienced with, with my parents, like wow. nine times out of 10, wow. you know? And so um, I think, you know, and that's why, that's why oh my God, all young couples, I think should be exposed to some basic understanding of, I'm biased, but family systems theory, because the understanding is that, yes, your kids will experience some version of what you saw growing up, because that's how it happens. The question is, you know, the, the, the optimism, I think, is any little change that you could bring that's a little bit different in terms of the way that you present yourself and your family from what you saw growing up is profound for your kids. Right. Um, and, and so I think people jump to United Front as a cure-all. If I have a United Front, my kids will never be subjected to what I saw growing up and is absolutely false. It's just right. false. Okay. Um, so can, we move, can we move on? Yeah, or? let's do it. Yeah. We got a couple of minutes here. So let's, um, let's do, um, what, what do we have here? Uh, which one do I want to focus on here? Um, oh, let's, let's do this one. Cause I think this is a really important one and we can, you know what, I can share the others with you, Ellie. We can post it online. Okay. I think this is really important for parents whose kids are going off to university or kids who are in their early twenties. Okay. And this is something you would not do perhaps as much with someone who's like 10 or 11. And this is well-timed personal disclosures. So disclosing information to a child, in this case, Sean to Will, um, that uh, might be inappropriate when kids are younger. And, and this is the same. This is where uh, their relationship now is strong. Will and Sean have a strong relationship. Previously, when there wasn't a strong relationship, if you recall, Sean was very defensive and guarded about his wife and his life. But as the relationship solidified, um, Will says, uh, you, don't, you don't regret meeting your wife. And Sean says, why? Because of the pain I feel now? I have regrets, Will, but I don't regret a single day I spent with her. Okay. Now, I am not su su suggesting therapists share their marital, uh, personal marital issues with their wife, but when appropriate, I will use, plus I, I write books so people will read some of this stuff. I will use a personal story, but generally I'll do a third person type of story, yeah. you know, a client, my friend, something to highlight a, a lesson. <clears throat> I think well-timed personal disclosures to teenagers and young adults is very powerful when they're into it. When they're not into it, it doesn't work. So this is the thing where it's like, you know, like the kid, yeah, I heard the story about right. you. Right, <laughs> you get the eye roll. Yeah, I, yeah, I know. You walk yes, you walked three winter, miles in the snow exactly. with your tennis rackets on your feet to get to school. And <laughs> right, yeah. So it has to be done. It has to be done strategically. It can't be done over and over again. But I think in this case, I think that it's a very good example of Sean strategically knowing when to share a personal vignette and knowing when to set the boundary. And I think, again, this comes back to parenting. It is tricky. There is no black and white um, issues with, with this. You have to find the nuance in each kid is different. You know, if you have three kids, they're all different. They're all different ages. And so you have to, you know, um, uh, 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 think about these things um, and apply some of these ideas to each child uh, separately. I think there's so many, I have, I think, five more that I can get into here, but um, there's just so much good stuff with how the character was written uh, and what we can walk away with um, to, to think about how can I be more of a resource to my kids um, and not do it always in, in a top heavy uh, sort of way. 
Yeah, I love that. Also, you know, mainly because we've spoken about this before, like so much of the power of uh, stories is part of Judaism. It's part of the spiritual practice. It's part of understanding deeper lessons where, you know, it's part of dreams, right? You, you learn these multi-layered pieces of information just simply through a story. And so I think the power of when you can pick the right story to tell your kid in the moment where it can, tra it can transmit an experience, a, an understanding, a learning, um, it, it's, it, it's gold. It's total gold. Rather than just telling them straight up, don't do that or this will happen, you know, the story just encapsulates so much. So I think it's such a powerful thing. And, and knowing, and like you said, knowing when to do it. I know with my kids every now and then, like, if you pick the right story, it goes, like, from the heart to the heart. And, and it penetrates on a much deeper level than just, you know, telling someone what to do in the moment. Um, but that's yeah. the trick. It's like trying to find the right story and knowing your kids well enough and being not anxious about it. And, you know, and, and watching their face. I mean, if they, yeah. if they look like they're, if they look like they're numb on morphine while you're telling them the story, <laughs> you're probably missing the mark. Right. You know? Um, so like, Ellie. You know, it, chewing on a pillow or trying to like do something else or yeah, the usual. Yeah. <laughs> playing with their phone. Um, so uh, uh, two things. Number one, I think we both agreed before the beginning of this call that um, we, uh, we haven't tackled the breakfast club, which to my mind, I was really surprised that we haven't, uh, done that film so yeah, again one of my favorites you done, you've done a blog on it on your website so if people have a chance to go check that out they should check it out but then we actually haven't done it on in this format so yeah i think um if you're good with it breakfast clubs i would love it now here's the thing i hear here's something that would be fun um either someone who has listened to this or you tell me which character or issue you're most curious about and that's that's where my research will focus. Okay. Um, I, I I would like that. All right. How do you how does that sound? Yeah, let's send it out there. We'll we'll ask people um, uh, on our Facebook feed and on the Zoom to just tell us what what character should we start with? And uh, yeah, exactly. And if they don't say, then it's up to me. You get the pick. Yes, you get the pick. <laughs> um, Fair okay. And also, uh, we wish all of our listeners a Gemar Chatima a meaningful fast, and we will speak to people next week. Wonderful. Thanks, Avram. Okay. Take care. Bye.